In a town with a reputation for oddity, the annual Asheville Fringe Festival is a celebration of the most odd, the most outsider of performance. I think a big part of Fringe's mission is to accept people who are outside of the mainstream. What we really want to see is people pushing the boundaries of their own work, trying new things. We might have an experimental group who's done experimental work for a long time, and after we see them applying five and six times in a row with the same type of work, even if it is stellar and really creative, we want to see them try something new. So we're always encouraging artists to grow and develop. I'm Matt Pikin. My guest today on The Overlook is Aaron Hartley, director of the Asheville Fringe Festival. Next week's festival will be the 21st Asheville Fringe, but this will be the first one since the pandemic that's completely back to unmasked in-person performances. I talked with Aaron about the evolution of Fringe as an idea, how this festival weathered and emerged from the pandemic, and why a January festival throughout its history has now moved to March. We also talk about the mix of local and visiting performers you'll see and why some applicants didn't make the cut. Erin Fowler is a commercial photographer. You can find her on Instagram as Scraps of Lace. She specializes in photographing couples and has a real knack for capturing just the right scenes at weddings. But she also takes on the role of event planner. Say you come to Erin wanting engagement photos. On the day of the shoot, Erin could bring you to a vineyard. We might set up a day of them playing games because they love to just play together. Or if they like nature more, then maybe we're doing a hike and then we're finding a place like a covered bridge to like set up their games and they're sitting there and they're having some drinks and playing their games and including that in their special day because that's something they love to do all the time. Erin also prepares for the unexpected. Like I have an emergency kit and in it I have first aid stuff, I have fleece line leggings, I have sunscreen, I have like all the things. So if you want a photographer who sees more than what shows up through her lens, look up Erin Fowler at scrapsoflacephotography.com or on Instagram as Scraps of Lace. I began my conversation with Erin Hartley by asking her to give uninitiated listeners an explanation of what exactly the Fringe Festival is. So Fringe has a pretty deep history. It started in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1947, I believe. It was post-war times, huge theater festival, and eight groups of theater came to perform and they were not admitted into the festival and they decided to produce their own shows on the outskirts of town. And they produced it during the same time as the festival and they then were nicknamed the Fringe, and from then on it grew around the world. So Edinburgh, Scotland still has the largest Fringe Festival. But part of the Fringe model that I really love is to make it affordable for artists and for audience goers. We have lower ticket prices than a lot of the mainstream theater in our area. And there's a bunch of different ways Fringes go about making it affordable for the artists. What defines the Fringe in terms of the kinds of performers who are in the festival? So our Fringe has a wide variety of the type of performers. So I would say it's performing arts and not just theater. I think that makes Asheville a little more unique. So there's a lot of theater, a lot of Fringe festivals are largely about theater, not exclusively, and some have visual art components. But I would say here we have juggling and comedy and a whole lot of dance. Part of the reason for having so much dance, though, I think is because Asheville Fringe was founded by two people who were running the Asheville Contemporary Dance Theater. And we're in their theater right now doing this interview, Susan and Giles Collard. Talk about how you said even from its founding, 
dance was at the foundation. And you said that's continued in that way. Is that deliberate? I don't think it's deliberate, but I do think we're 21 years old. We're about to go into our 21st festival and Giles and Susan are still very involved and the Asheville Contemporary Dance Theater is very involved. So because it grew out of their community, I think there are a lot of people who are just really connected and feel good about this type of work. Has it always been the same type of melange of performers or has the type of performances that fringe, that draws fringe, has that evolved over time? I think a big part of Fringe's mission is to accept people who are outside of the mainstream. So people whose work might not be produced in mainstream venues for various reasons. So I think in variety, you're going to see a lot of experimental work, a lot of new work, a lot of work that might not be accepted by a regular theater goer of the community. You just touched on something I think is important for audiences to know or potential audiences that in a way the mainstreaming of theater, mainstreaming of dance, mainstreaming of performance, meaning like what will sell tickets, that isn't of chief concern to the fringe. So our festival, I think, is known to be a little bit different, a little bit wild. What defines success then? Or do you define success? What makes a good fringe festival? So what I think a good fringe festival has a wide variety of acts, a wide variety of different types of things that you can see. But what we really want to see is people pushing the boundaries of their own work, trying new things. We might have an experimental group who's done experimental work for a long time, and after we see them applying five and six times in a row with the same type of work, even if it is stellar and really creative, we want to see them try something new. So we're always encouraging artists to grow and develop. And I think you asked, what would be a success? Yeah, what, what defi- Yeah, I asked, if it's not ticket sales per se, although you would love to sell out every show. If it's not that, what defines successful shows and successful runs of The Fringe? I think being able to give audiences something that they're not seeing in other places. And I think the connections that the artists make with each other can be really beautiful. And I see a lot of growth come out of that. We've been about 60% local, 40% folks from out of town. This year, it's a little closer to 50-50. Is that by chance, just because, oh, there were a predominant number of stronger acts from out of town, or were there fewer locals applying? What's the reason behind that? It's not necessarily by chance, but we had a lot of really fantastic content this year. Some of the best pieces I've seen come through the adjudication process, and that's just how it came about when we were trying to find a balance. Many other festivals are lotteries. We're an adjudicated festival, and part of the privilege we have in doing that is to be able to make sure that we have a nice balance. So I don't think that we ever want to tip it to be any more than 50%. I think we really want to honor our local artistic community for sure, but that's just the way it shook out. Is this going to be the first post-pandemic fringe that is fully unmasked and, quote, back to normal? Yes, this is the first festival in two years that has been fully unmasked. So the timeline for us, our festival has typically been in January. So we were able to have a festival in January 2020 before the world shut down two months later. The next year, we ended up going all virtual. And then the following year, we did, we planned to do a hybrid festival in January. We were going to do half of it online, half of it out in public so people could really choose. They would still be able to be, to participate and to see shows in whatever way felt safe to them. But that's when things really changed for us. So we planned to do that all in January. And then we were noticing after holiday travel, people were getting sick. Artists were dropping like flies. They were having to tend to sick relatives. They were having to replace cast members. So then we had shows 
that kept on having to drop. We ended up moving part of our festival to March. How did that affect you in terms of your decision making about what to do with Fringe when every people were dropping off and you, some parts are virtual, some parts are in person? How do you inform an audience about what's happening? My first instinct was we're just going to have a smaller festival. And then when the numbers started to get really imbalanced, I'm like, this is not working. People are not feeling safe. I can't ask actors to come and do this. So it was not an easy process being about two decades old, people are used to the fringe being in January. There was a whole lot of communicating to our audiences about the change. It ended up being like, instead of doing two mini festivals or two halves of a festival, it felt like producing two full festivals under really stressful times. And staffing them it was hard too. So being able to find volunteers to work the box office for the portion that we did in March. So we moved the live portion to March and kept the online portion in January. So how did that affect your ability to have venues? The venues that are open in January may not be the venues that are open in March. Exactly. That was another challenge. So some of the venues could accommodate us. Some of them could accommodate us for two days as opposed to four. Some of them were like, I'm sorry, I can't, but can we help you out with another event down the line? But we just can't. Some venues were closed. Some venues didn't know if they were going to make it and close. Everything was so precarious that folks weren't even sure that they would be have their doors open in two months. So it was a day by day, try to figure it out and keep up with it. Why were you so committed to having a fringe at all under those kind of circumstances instead of just saying, let's just wait till the smoke clears and we'll be dark until we can fully reopen as a fringe? Because people needed the arts. People really needed the arts. And our fringe community is so strong that people really love making those kind of connections. I was really impressed, even though I never want to watch another thing on a screen again, I was really impressed at the way that the community stayed connected in those virtual times and how supportive audiences were and how we were able to utilize Zoom to have sort of after parties where people could still talk and hang out. But the arts are crucial when the world is in such a dark place. That's one of the things we have to look forward to. Do you think the pandemic affected the kinds of art we were seeing at Fringe? I think, of course, in the virtual world, it changed it. First of all, the theaters had to fly by the seat of their pants learning the technology to even be able to produce or to live stream or to video record. So there was a learning curve with that. So we saw quality, I think, over time get a little better. And we've learned so much more than we did in the beginning. What's really, really tough as a performer when you are used to a live audience, that's part of the beauty of being a performance artist. And then you're in a dark room or a dark theater or your living room or wherever you may be, and you're creating this show with no feedback, with no laughter during the show. You can't feel the energy of the audience. If you own or run the marketing of a business in this region, nonprofit or for-profit, podcasting is a unique, engaging way to tell your story. These are called branded podcasts. Your company owns the show, and I'm here to help you put one together. It might be a short series or an ongoing production. You already know about the years of great work I did in public radio and now here with The Overlook. I also want to work for you through my studio, Podcast Asheville. Email me at matt at podavl.com. That's P-O-D-A-V-L dot com. Let's talk and see how I can help you meet your marketing goals with a podcast that's all your own. Now that we are fully out again, tell us about the range of specific shows that are coming here that are new, that have caught your attention, that you think, wow, this is something we haven't seen. 
So there's a show coming from Texas A&M called Where There Is Hope, There Is Life. It's about the Holocaust. So it's a pretty heavy piece, but it's done in a really beautiful, unique, immersive way. So that one's going to be at the Art Garden, which is like a two-story gallery. And the actors in this piece are going to be throughout the gallery in different spaces, and the audience is going to travel through the different spaces. Some pieces are poetry, some are music, some are dance, some are theater. They apply with video and application, and we read about it, and then we invite them to adjudication, and they only really get seven minutes to talk about it. And that was one of the pieces that we knew was a great fit. So talk about the show that's coming from South Carolina. So that one is called The Blur. And it is similar in concept. It was devised. It was based on a Fugard play, and it deals with race, racism. And it's, yeah, it's devised, which means ensemble created. So it's nonlinear and has a lot of movement, and it's a very diverse cast. You mentioned this show deals with race. Are you finding or have there been, has there been an increase in shows dealing with the contemporary social issues of our time? Have you seen that being a focus at all? I noticed that diversity is growing in our applicants, which is really exciting to see. Racially, folks from the LGBTQ plus community. So yes, I think there is a wider array of people from various communities creating art. Is that locally and from out of town? I went to the World Fringe Conference in Orlando last May, and this is something that we talked about. And I know that other folks were challenged in getting people of color to apply. So that was one of the strategic meetings that people kept attending to of how do you get more than just a white audience. So I'm not sure how that's changed for those fringe festivals, but it seems like people were struggling. And I was pretty impressed with the array of people we got this year. Again, I think people, we've gotten a lot of feedback from artists, particularly artists from out of town, about how welcoming and inclusive we are. So for us, we're hoping that people not only come here and produce their work, but they're coming to after parties. We have after parties every night for artists to be able to mingle and meet people and audiences. They're all, except for the closing night, free and open to the public. And we try to make sure we have options for folks like coffee hours during the day if late night isn't their thing. What were the totals or approximate totals of applicants this year that you got and how many got in? So we had 111 applicants. Pre-pandemic, we were reaching about 130, give or take a little bit. So we're building up again, which has been nice to see. And then we accepted 59 acts. Talk about the local artists who we have seen before. And you said one of the bellwethers you're looking for is how have they evolved? How are they changing? Give us an example of one or two local artists who represents that change of evolution in their craft that we're going to see here at this festival. Amanda Levesque is one of our regular performers. She is a performer in a wheelchair, and she has been really great about creating new work to help tell her story, help audience understand different people with differing abilities. She's reached a lot of different people in telling her story, and she was coming back over and over. She's a very talented theater artist, and there was a year that she applied. And we met her with, okay, and we've seen this story. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Audiences need to see it. But you are an amazing artist. How can that work change for you? So this year, typically she's done an hour-long piece. This year she's done a 20-minute piece. And she's including dancers and live musicians in a way that she hasn't before. So that's an example I can think of. Toy Box Theater is another regular of ours. I was just going to ask you about Toy Box. Like if you were to pick an artist in town who is fringy, 
he might be at the top of that list. So he creates a new piece each year. And this is where he creates a piece that he knows that he wants to tour. So he tries new things and uses the Asheville audience to test out his new work. So he's become a staple. He still does have to apply and go through adjudication. But we also know that what he's going to bring each year is new and different. So that's part of his mission to test out the audiences. He's been really great. He's an artist who really thrived throughout the pandemic because he was able to create several different types of shows virtually. Why did you decide to have the festival fully in March? It was, as you say, said before, a January festival. And I imagine people in the heart of winter really look forward to something they could get out to. Now it's in March. Why did you make that move? There's a few reasons for that. So it was historically in January for several reasons. One of them is there, there wasn't a lot happening in January in Asheville. That is changing. Another reason is during the pandemic, so many people, we, what we found is that people were traveling and getting sick. We didn't anticipate that to be the case last year, and then it was. So we lost a lot of artists because of that. And we didn't know what was going to happen this year. So... It was a gamble to make the decision to move it to March, but not knowing if that the same thing was going to happen year after year. Like, how long is it going to take for this COVID mess to get under control enough that January would be an okay time for people to perform? But there are a lot of other perks to March, too. Like I said, the community is changing a little bit. Venues are changing how they operate. A lot of venues now have open air spaces that they didn't have before. January is tough for walking from one space to another when it can be really cold, windy. One of the most terrifying things of being an artistic director in a town in January in a town that is not set up to handle snow and ice very well. Our festival could take a really big hit if we're snowed out one night. Did you have a challenge with venues? You mentioned how January, at least in the past, there wasn't as much going on, which made venues probably a little more available. March, there's a lot more performances now happening in everywhere. It's starting to blossom up. Did that challenge you in terms of getting venues? Yes and no. So again, for us, community that we've created has been really important. So we have a lot of venues that were really dedicated to remaining a part of Fringe if they could make it work at all. So we're really fortunate that folks like the BB Theater and the Magnetic Theater built it into their schedule. And they really worked with us as we were trying to make those difficult decisions about whether or not we should move to March. And you've been creative, at least historically, the Fringe has been creative about turning places into venues that weren't venues. Yes, yes. Are there some of those in this festival? There are a bunch of those. Talk about those. This year, something that's new for us is we have a lot of venues in the Foundy area. So that area has been up and coming, changing. We are Fringe Central, which is where people will buy tickets and artists will pick up their passes and things like that. That's going to be at Marquee, which is sort of the the biggest building in the Foundy area. So we're going to draw people in that way. But we are going to be at Wedge Brewing in the cloud room there in that same area. We're going to be in House of Kismet, which is a clothing consignment store. I think that's going to be really funky. We've placed a couple of shows that I think are going to be like a beautiful fit to be in that space. There's a one-woman show that's a mystery about someone who disappeared and no one knows what happened to her. And I think just being amidst the clothing, the it feels like ghosts of people's pasts in there already. So I think that's going to be great. We use Fleetwoods, which is a bar on Haywood Road, known for also being a wedding chapel. It has a vintage clothes element too, but it's not really set up for theater or dance. It's mostly a live music venue, but we're going to put some plays in there. Are there any venues that are mobile that take 
people to different locales. So that is one of the things that is sad about moving to March. That that is one of our bigger challenges. We have been involved with the Lazoom bus tour company for a very long time. Jim and Jen Lazan are huge, fringy people, fans. They have been a part of our adjudication team, and we love them. And when we made the decision to move to March... As their business is growing and changing, it didn't work for us to have a bus tour for them this year. That is also where we used to have our Fringe Central. And it turns out that March, preparing for a large tourist wave, they're having to use their space for more and more rehearsals and they don't have as many buses to be available. And all the other businesses in town, they need to take the business that they have and kind of not change that model. But that is something I've talked to Jim a number of times and we hope to get back to the Lazoom tour in the future. Has there ever been talk of expanding to two weekends? We were in talks of that pre-pandemic. As we had to work our way through virtual and splitting to half virtual, half live, and as we're just coming back into full festival mode, we thought that it might be best for us to stick to a model that we know and that we have done. You mentioned new venues. We have 12 venues this year across town, and 50% of those are new. So a lot goes into making those venues work for Fringe. A lot of them are new to even understanding what Fringe is. They're very supportive. All of our venues are super awesome. For example, if we're going to be on this fine art gallery, how do we use the space and honor the art that is there? How do we work around that? There's lighting focused in particular directions, and we can't refocus it. We need to bring in our own lighting equipment. There's a lot of outfitting of some of these spaces and these relationships that we're building. From the very beginning of learning about this fringe, what frustrated me was that it was only one weekend and that you can't get word of mouth going. That's one of the things that makes a fringe, like the Minnesota fringe, really work. Word of mouth spreads by show three, show four. Everyone is flooding the shows that are getting all talked about. And here, correct me if I'm wrong, but all shows get either one or two performances. Is that correct? All the ticketed shows get two performances each. And we've tried to, we've learned over the years just because of exactly what you're talking about. We've tried to, to stagger those and change up the day. Oh, how do I explain that? We wanted artists to be able to see each other's work because sometimes artists are the best promoters of other people. So right. we try to balance that schedule in a way that they're able to see different shows every night. It used to be that they were always playing opposite of the same show. So we try to stagger it and mix it up a little bit so more artists can see other shows. That's been beneficial. And then the random acts of Fringe, which we call RAFs, being able to have so many of those in the week leading up has been really helpful. Another thing that we do, actually, this is a thing I didn't talk about, is we have a lot of shows that are double or triple features. Like the 20-minute shows, you've stacked those together into two or three, right? Correct. So each ticketed Fringe show is an hour in length. That being said, we allow people to apply with pieces as short as five minutes. <laughs> really? Yeah. So do you have that in this festival? I think the shortest we have in this festival is a 10-minute piece. Okay. But there are some double and triple features, and we get creative and pretty intentional about how we pair some of those artists together. So if we have a 40-minute piece from someone local, then we might pair them with a 15- or 20-minute piece from someone for out of town, because that really helps with ticket sales, too.
I want to thank my guest today, Aaron Hartley of the Asheville Fringe Festival. Festival events begin on Monday, and you can find out everything about this festival at AshevilleFringe.org. We conducted our conversation from the BB Theater, which is one of the venues of the festival. The owners of the BB are Susan and Giles Collard, who are founders of this festival, and they've been really kind to let me use their space to record my interviews. Our theme music is Maker's Song, courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. New episodes of The Overlook are up by 6 a.m. every day, Monday through Friday. I'm Matt Pikin, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.